Hey, uh, welcome to the Brooks Online Gathering. My name is Muchi Akebu. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Honored that we could connect together uh, in this way for this moment. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 19 is where we're going to be today. In fact, it's where we're going to be next week as well as we sit in and work through Jesus's words to us and the ideas, the considerations and the actions that they develop. So if you have a Bible, grab it and meet me there. If you're using an app, meet me there as well. If you don't have either, the words will be on the screen so that we can track through the text together. It matters. Bringing the weight of God's design and direction to bear on all the relationships that we find ourselves in and all the relational spaces that we find ourselves in for the purpose of pursuing greater health and wholeness, finding life, it matters. Now that's been the, the thread that's kind of gone between every passage, every message, that's been the task in front of us and that thread, that task is going to lead us into some topics that quite honestly may make some of us feel uncomfortable. Uh, some topics that make may make some of us frustrated or, or may even create within some of us a level of angst it may create in some of us a level of curiosity or even create this tremendous sense of remorse. And for others, it may create a tremendous sense of resolve, allowing us to re-envision life and freedom, what it looks like regarding the areas that we are going to work through. But for all of us, it should create more conversation regarding these topics, more wrestling with the God who is and what he would have for us where we are. Now, the topics are going to span the spectrum of marriage and singleness again and divorce even and sex and sexuality, all of these topics that carry a significant amount of weight and importance them, but we want to bring God's direction and design again to bear in a way that produces greater health and wholeness for all of us. That's the aim. Now, I'm going to say that quite honestly, I am confident all right, that I am going to inadequately address these topics. And I don't say that as if I haven't given significant amount of thought and energy and study uh, to these topics for a very long time. I don't say that because of that, nor do I say that as in some sense of false like self or like trying to self-deprecate myself or even to curry some level of sympathy for you as much as to say there's something that we all need to embrace, which is this. Humanity is wonderfully simple while deeply complex. That's us. There's so much to us. I mean, stories, biology, hopes, fears, psychology, dreams, souls. There's so much to us. We are the products of this imaginative God full of grace and love. That's who we are, humanity. And there's moments certain situations, certain circumstances, certain conversations, certain areas where we feel that intersection of like wonderful simplicity, yet like this deep complexity all at the same time. 
whenever we like walk through these areas of marriage, divorce, singleness, sex and sexuality, like we feel that tension uniquely. In fact, that's why some of us avoid these areas. We don't tend to talk about these things. We tend to kind of like put them in the corner. And even some pastors, they don't have messages on these things because there's a tension here. There's an intersection of, of tension and complexity and simplicity all at the same time. But we can't, I can't with any degree of integrity, intellectually or spiritually approach these topics as if God is silent. As if he has nothing to say. No, God, God has a lot to say on these areas. But what I know and you probably know as well is what has taken place often is God's voice has been hijacked uh, by, by people who deform biblical truth and beauty. They twist it to suit their needs. And often that shows up as the word of God and God's voice becoming a vehicle for oppression and the furtherance of pain for people made in the very image of God. And in this area, in these areas specifically, God's voice often feels more harsh and more restrictive, more rejection-orienting and condemning, and not one of invitation and renewal. And so we don't want that. We want to work through what God says and we actually need to start with this statement. <laughs> this may feel like a long intro. It is, praise God. Ponder the paths of your feet. Ponder the paths of your feet. As we work through the variety of these topics in this area, there's this overarching practice and paradigm that it is absolutely crucial we take hold of to ponder the path of our feet. Now that, like that is, all throughout the scriptures, but it is really an idea, a practice developed in the wisdom literature, specifically Proverbs 4.26, where the writer says that we would ponder the path of our feet. And as a result, we would make sure that our, our paths are pleasing, the way in which we are walking is sure pondering the path of our feet. If you've ever gotten uh, new kicks or shoes, if you don't understand that colloquial, that vernacular, um, you know you walk differently with a new pair of shoes on. There's a different level of attention you're given to what you're doing, where you're going, what's in front of you. There's gingerness in your steps, tiptoeing in my joy. Like that's just kind of what takes place. And to ponder the path of our feet is to do that. It, it implies this sense of giving attention and energy to where we're going, how we're getting there, specifically how we're living, even what we're after. That, that's the sense that pondering the path of our feet entails, but there's more to it. It doesn't just carry the sense of attentiveness and thoughtfulness to where we're going, what we're after, and, and how we're living. To ponder carries this sense of weight. And so it's attaching direction to where we're going. It's attach, attaching meaning to where we're going. It is measuring where we're going, how we're living, what we're after against something that matters so we're not aimless. So you look at the scriptures, Proverbs 4.26, 
And we also get some other complementary scriptures that should be taken alongside it, like Psalm 16, 11, where it says, man, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy at your right hand pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16, 11. We should take into consideration passages like Isaiah 26, 7 through 8. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the path of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait your name and remembrance on the desire of our soul. When we couple that with Proverbs 4.26 and this consistent invitation by the scriptures to us to ponder the path of our feet, what we see is that ponder the path of our feet is attentively, thoughtfully, and regularly evaluating our life through the word of God. And those who attentively, thoughtfully, regularly evaluate their life through the word of God find that they actually get life. <laughs> it's a practice of those who desire life and they actually run into it. And so in all of these areas, we're called to ponder the path of our feet because embedded in these areas is an absolute force. It's a force we're familiar with. A force is called sexual desire. Sexual desire is such a force. It could create in us energy and endurance to like, accomplish significant tasks because we are being propelled by something powerful and we want to get a particular and sexual desires of force or it could cause us to like have our rations like be disengaged have our thoughtfulness our our mind our reason get subverted and then we find ourselves doing things that we never thought we would we find ourselves on roads walking in paths we never thought we would wake it up one day like how did i get here it's a force and the scriptures show us it's not it's not a, a force that we can imprison desire doesn't work that way nor is that the remedy that we're given rather we take into account the desires at work in us as we ponder the paths of our feet and it's necessary to start there because if we actually use that as an overarching paradigm, we're actually going to see that there's great life to be found for us and others in all of these areas. That's the frame I'm actually going to end with. Bonder the path of our feet as the closing call to action. But Matthew 19, Matthew 19 is this interaction where Jesus is having to address a controversy regarding divorce for cause. What constitutes a valid reason for breaking the marriage covenant? But the people who are asking him this question, they didn't do it with pure motives. They didn't really care what God's design or direction was regarding the situation. Rather, they just wanted to invalidate Jesus, show him up. They wanted to invalidate him entirely, or they wanted to invalidate his voice and influence with the people who were on the other side of how he responded. But one thing I love about Jesus, put this in your back pocket, is Jesus regularly transcends the trap. What we get as Jesus is working out this 
introducing of a powerful ethic and image of God's design for humanity and this unique experience of marriage, what we get is Jesus is developing this idea regarding the protection of women within society. And if we tease out those principles, we get that it's not just the protection of women, we get that it's the protection of the vulnerable among us. Nevertheless, we get the protection of women in a society. We also get the nature and nobility of marriage. We get what are the valid reasons for breaking the marriage covenant. We also get like the nature and nobility of sex and sexuality. We also get the nature of personhood, personhood being what does it mean to be fully human? What is essential to humanity? What constitutes this thing, personhood? And then we also get the beauty of pursuing sexual purity as well as a life of celibacy, which in of itself is like, that makes floor some of us. Again, I said some of us could feel very uncomfortable. But we get all of that there. Raise your hand. Even now, raise your hand if you feel like that's a lot. It is. And it's all the stuff that depending on how you think about it, how you talk about it, and the conclusions you draw, people will be like, oh, you're those people. <laughs> you're those people. And nevertheless, that's where we are. And we got to work through it. Now, we're not going to tackle all of that. We're just going to look at the first few ideas and we're going to develop, again, considerations and actions for how we can experience greater life and wholeness. Matthew 19, read with me, um, and then we'll take it bit by bit, idea by idea. I'm excited. <laughs> Let's read. It reads like this, uh, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And a large crowds uh, followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And he, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
let the one who is able to receive this go. So that's a lot. <laughs> uh, some context that leads into uh, the first idea. Now, the controversy that Jesus was being set up to weigh in on regarding what constitutes a valid divorce, it developed in the Jewish community of faith based on interpretations of Deuteronomy 24. So Deuteronomy 24 kind of frames this whole conversation of receiving a divorce certificate and how a husband can divert, divorce his wife. Now, Deuteronomy 24.1 has this combination of Hebrew words that is translated for us this way. If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now, the development of the controversy was how do people interpret that? And there was really two schools of thought of how you interpreted that passage. And so one school of thought, um, they really approached it with a more rigid sense, with, 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 with more conservative leanings, if you will. And what they said was that the way we should understand that passage is primarily looking at indecency, which constitutes adultery. And so the only valid reason for divorce is that of adultery. And notice the emphasis is still on the husband being able to divorce the wife. And so if she's unfaithful to him, he could send her on her own way. Now, that's one school of thought that kind of approached it. There was another school of thought that actually took a different vantage point that was a little bit more loose with the way they interpreted it. And they actually put the emphasis on favor in his us. And they used that to kind of interpret what indecency meant. And what was developed was this sense that really, clearly adultery is a valid reason. But anything that causes a husband to feel displeased, and the word is even translated almost shamed, then he could, he could do away with his wife. And so, it, I mean, the spectrum of this was crazy. It was, yeah. You used to look good. You had one too many kids. You stopped working out. You don't look good anymore. I'm not attractive to you, so you gotta go. Yeah, you used to kill it in the kitchen, but man, lately, it ain't that great. And you just burnt my toast. You gotta go. And so essentially what developed within this school of thought was this idea that for any reason that was suitable to the husband, he could send his wife on her own way, divorce. Now, out of those two schools of thoughts, the one that was more pervasive, the one that actually shaped practices was the second school of thought. Now think about this. Think about this for a second. A school of thought that essentially said a husband could dismiss his wife for whatever, that shaped the community of faith Jesus and the disciples were growing up in. Now, you couple that with the Greco-Roman worldview for marriage that functionally had marriage like as a social contract or a way to, you know, continue to produce progeny and, you know, secure a legacy. And even in the society, it was bent towards male pleasure. And what you get is all of these ideas regarding marriage that missed the mark. They missed it. But do you know, do you know who suffered the most with 
that missing the mark? It was women. It was women. That functionally what took place because of this ethic and this idea is that women existed to satisfy and serve the male appetite. That's, that, that is the casualty. Women's dignity, women's experience in life was a casualty of these various expressions that missed the mark regarding marriage. That's why the first idea that we have to see here is how Jesus protects the women in the society. Think about how world-shattering what Jesus did was. His response to introduce this robust picture of God's design for marriage when he did that and it started to shape the implications of that some like permanence that marriage isn't primarily for you. And the disciples knew it. They were like, wait, if that's the case, with a man and his wife, it's better that we don't get married. Think about how world shattering that was for so many. But think about how liberating, encouraging, empowering, world rebuilding it was for others. The crowds followed him. That was verse one. And in the crowds are males and females, husbands and wives, divorcees, people who are thinking about kicking their wife to the curve and worlds are being shattered and rebuilt all the way. But the ones that are being rebuilt are those of women. You have dignity. You have this. You are more than a body to satisfy somebody's appetite. I love this. We can't read this and not see Jesus standing up for women. In fact, this is just part of who Jesus is. Jesus regularly stands up for those who have been harmed, specifically those who have been harmed by people misusing God's word. This is what Jesus does all the time. And the reason why we actually start with this idea is because in these topics of marriage, of divorce, of singleness, of sex and sexuality, what often happens is Christianity kind of has this repressive feel to it. It's this backwoods dated ethos that suppresses and represses people regularly. So we don't need Christian thinking in these areas because it's only going to hinder what we're after most, which is freedom. And if you think that, let me give you the opportunity to have a different perspective and ammunition to fight for a glorious paradigm that Jesus steps in with strength for those who are vulnerable and specifically, uniquely, significantly in this context in ways that uplift the dignity of women. This is not a hobby horse. This is not a cultural talking point. This is tied to what it means to be human. And this is tied to the savior we claim. And furthermore, as a consideration, what history will continuously show us, we're gonna build this out more, is that in cultures, where sexual ethics are out of whack in cultures and places and societies where sexual desire drives everything with no boundaries in cultures where the end all be all 
is the satisfying of oneself sexually. The casualties of that ethos prevailing are always women and children. Always. And so we get an epic that goes beyond that moment. But there's, there's more. There's more here. <laughs> Let's move to the next idea. Uh, next idea, the nature and nobility of marriage. The very fact that Jesus comes on the scene and shatters this paradigm of marriage that allows for a person to get a divorce when they please, when the marriage is no longer suitable towards meeting their needs is itself a statement regarding the nature and nobility of marriage. Think about what that means regarding its nature. It means that the nature and purpose of marriage goes far beyond personal self-gratification. Because if that's a purpose, Jesus doesn't need to say anything. Just, just keep moving on along the path that allows you to use people to gratify yourself as you please. And marriage is just another tool to that end. But he comes and he, he shatters that. He rebukes that. He indicts that onto nobility. Now, think about how flimsy and uninspiring the picture of marriage was in Jesus' day, given the current circumstances that existed. But, but because he is like changing the existing paradigm for something that is better, he is changing what is preferred for something that is excellent and true, he is actually simultaneously protecting the institution itself. We protect what matters most. Ideas, people, the whole shebang. We protect what matters most. And so if you grew up like collecting like figurines or cards, like you kept them in a safe place, you, you guarded them, you treated them uniquely. Maybe you had a grandma who had that special furniture that had that weird saran wrap on it and you sat on it and you sunk in and you're like, this is weird. But it was valuable to her. We protect what we value most. We protect what's most valuable. And what Jesus is doing by rebuking this destructive idea is he's protecting what is good and thus showcasing that it's good, that it carries an air of dignity and nobility. Now all of that is there, but what's, what's beautiful is he doesn't just stop there. What he actually does is he roots the nature and nobility of marriage in the creation account and the poetry that we get from the first few pages of the Bible. Like, I mean, read, this is what he says. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore god has joined let not man separate do we, do we see what he's doing there do we see what he's doing there he is reaching beyond 
cultural norms to make a case or an argument for the nature or nobility of marriage, and he is rooting it in God's original intent and design for it, showcased through the creation account and the poetry. Think about the creation account, where we have this self-existent God who is powerful, absolutely, absolutely powerful, yet deeply personal, simultaneously free, yet moves in ways where he obligates and commits himself, the paradox, full of this great, vast imagination, full of good intention and unconditional love, and out of the overflow of all of who God is, he creates this vast, good, imaginative, beautiful world. His fingerprints everywhere. But when you get to humans, when you get to humanity, there's something beyond fingerprints. It's called the image of God, that he doesn't make humans like everything else. Rather, from the dirt, he forms a people and breathes his very breath into their lungs. Dirt with God's breath in it, humanity embodied souls, this unique creation that's wonderfully simple yet deeply complex, this unique, com like complex, beautiful creation bearing the image and likeness of God, distinct from all of creation, distinctly male and female. We get that there that you get this distinct maleness and femaleness wrapped in the creation story in a way that shows God made these two humans, these two aspects of humanity to reflect him in unique yet significant and profound ways. And when I say maleness and femaleness is wrapped in there, I'm talking about all of the various dynamics that were present the creation story, not the ones that we think about in terms of like cultural predispositions and even the ones that make us feel like this is really just a, a, a social construct. Like, you know, you know, if you have that cultural predisposition that may lead you to say, well, this is the role of X person, X female, X male. So go find a kitchen, go find an apron, go find some flannel and go chop some wood and grunt while you're doing it. Cause that, that is nonsense. All of that is nonsense and none of that is here. What we have here is this beautiful binary that's bursting with intentionality. God looking at it and saying, oh yeah, that's good. This is exactly how I made it so that it can reflect of this unique committed covenant is this idea of having the capacity to further life through child to now come together and do it another expression of this unique like covenant committed like love is the fact that Adam and the woman are obligated to one another in a unique way, in a way that they're not obligated to everyone else in creation. Adam is not having the same type of dialogue with the 
lions or the daffodils as he is with the woman. We know this because that statement that is left for us, that they were naked and unashamed, is both the transition to the tragedy that's coming, but it's a statement of unique vulnerability that they're looking at each other and there's nothing inside of them that's gonna cause them to have angst. But this unique vulnerability is experienced within each other, not everybody else. They're not looking at each, like other people or other aspects of creation the same way. There's some more uniqueness here. What is guiding and even grounding this covenant, this committed experience is God's words to them and God's words like for them and God's love for them. Now we know this to be true because God gives them instructions that are rooted in love and Adam starts to like lead his, his, his wife in this way, in a way that he's not interacting with other aspects of creation. Guys, this is all here. Furthermore, this embodiment of God's love for them, the way that they're expressed is that it would portray an experience of covenantal wants to share with all of humanity. That's the end game. And Jesus adds weight to that by bringing a level of permanence. God's love is unchanging and our love for one another should be unchanging as well. If you're married, you hear me this. God designed marriage and your marriage to display, to portray something that's worth experiencing, his committed love. Now, again, in case we missed that, that means the primary goal of marriage is not our self-gratification, it's God's glorification. That God would be seen as true. That God would ex be experienced as true and loving. That in marriage, a story would be told that matters. And what that means is that even if you don't get to experience marriage, this side of heaven, it's just a symbol of something beautiful. Now, I used to travel before the apocalypse. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, when I would be away at a city, like before I would go to sleep, I would look at my phone and I'd just look at pictures of Diamond because I, you know, I looked at pictures of Diamond. And partly because, I mean, I'm a sensitive soul and I think borderline hopeless romantic. Um, but you know what would have been weird? If when I got home, I sat next to her on the couch and instead of spending time with her, I just stared at my phone and the pictures of her. That would be weird. That would be weird. It would be weird to trade what the picture points to for the picture itself. Like that would be weird. When we, when we don't allow marriage to be the symbol that it's meant to be, either by idolizing it or diminishing it, like people miss out. There's something glorious here and they get it. They feel the weight of what Jesus is saying. And so they even say, wait a second then, how come, how come? If this is so good, if this is so great, if this is so grand, how come 
Moses gave us divorce. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Moses didn't command you to get a divorce. Moses allowed it because of your hard hearts. Why does divorce exist? Because of sin. Divorce exists because of selfishness in the souls of all of us that shows up as an unwillingness to move beyond our own personal comfort. Like it exists because self-gratification is actually appealing and it is easy. It is very easy to see our spouses, our significant others as obstacles or vehicles to what we want most. And if we see them as an obstacle, we know what we do with obstacles, we get them out the way. And if we see them as a vehicle, you know what happens when you use a vehicle, when you keep putting mileage on it, you get a new one. Or you put it in a garage somewhere because it's vintage, but you don't really pay special attention to it. And we know that our tendencies is to do that, to treat other people in that way and that's why concessions exist but even the concessions that exist aren't what people think right so like what's fascinating about this conversation don't miss this jesus is making a case for the beauty of god's design with marriage and the implications thereof on all other areas of life what Jesus is not doing is celebrating divorce, right? That's like, that's, that's not what's happening here. I, let me explain like this. Um, it's actually an illustration from Carlos with Reality in you know, Miami. We were uh, chatting about this message um, and then actually got to live this illustration Thursday. And so I was driving uh, home and I was on the intersection of 59th and North Miami Ave. And what took place was there was this crazy accident. I mean, this was a pretty bad car crash. And so as I pulled up on it, what I saw was people on the phone, um, people exchanging information. And we, we know what kind of happens next, right? So we know what comes next after a car crash. Uh, you know, uh, insurance companies are, are involved. There's this entire process. Some of it involves legal aspects and even some legal ramifications. And there's this built out process to really make the most of a bad situation. It's, it's like this energy and this effort to make the most of an unforeseen yet terrible situation. But you know what would be weird? You know what would be weird? If there was all of this energy, all of this effort, this entire built out process to actually figure it out, how can we make car track crashes more effective? Like how can we spend energy, effort, and time? And how can we build out this process to make more effective car crashes? Like that's weird. No, you don't do that. We don't do that. We put the energy and the effort and the time into preventing car crashes. And then we put the energy, effort and the time into making the most of bad, unforeseen, terrible situations when car crashes take place. What Jesus is doing is he is not trying to develop all of these concessions for them. Rather, he is lifting up the greatness of the design that they missed. They missed it. They missed it. And Jesus is like, hey, let me direct your eyes towards it in a unique way. Even so, he does give us valid reasons for breaking the marriage covenant, but they may not like end where you think or where most people may think they end. So 
if we take into account Jesus like bringing like this force to stand on behalf of women, if we take into account even his identifying of like a more conservative take of Deuteronomy 24, i.e. sexual immorality, adultery is one of those reasons for like breaking this marriage covenant. If we take into account Exodus 21, that actually has a, 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 a story of how we're supposed to interact with, with divorce situations. If we take into account Paul and what Paul did as he picked up on this whole entire ethic that Jesus is laying out here that he's going to use to talk extensively in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7, what we're meant to see is that the validity for breaking a marriage covenant goes beyond adultery and includes abuse, neglect, and abandonment. We got to take in what Jesus is doing. We got to take in other passages. We got to take in Paul's ethic and how he continues to build this out that there is this move to preserve and care for people and protect this institution. He fences it. He fences it. Now, let's not lose sight that just because something is permissible doesn't mean that it's preferable. And this fencing assumes community, right? The crowds, the disciples, people hearing this who could come alongside other couples, other people in delicate spaces, which means practically, I just want to talk to a few of us, if you find yourself in, in a situation right now, you don't have to walk alone. You don't, because there's community to come alongside, to move us forward. Well, now what Jesus is doing is he's modeling this idea of the analogy of scripture and the analogy of faith, which are two tools to interpret scripture. And what Jesus did is how we were able to bring in other scriptures to see like, wait a second, there's more here to understand the ideas that he's communicating. But let me explain it like this. So if we bring out the context that Jesus is defending the vulnerable women in this context, if we bring out another passage where we get how God wants people to interact in the context of divorce, this is Exodus 21. If we bring out Paul, who uses this entire like interaction to build some significant ethics and instructions for Christians, specifically the Christians in Corinth, chapter six and verse uh, chapter seven, what we see is that there's some other reasons that are valid, reasons that go beyond like adultery, the reasons of abuse and neglect and abandonment. All of those constitute reasons to break a marriage covenant and to try and make the most of a bad situation because even this happens in the context of community, the community of faith. Can't close without this consideration though. There's a lot here we're gonna get more into next week, but one thing that's just been rocking me is how the people at the moment chose 
something that was more preferable than actually choosing to wrestle what God was saying. And the capacity in all of us to take what God is saying and fit it to something that's more pal palatable for us. But we should just be aware of that, which is why we should consistently ponder the path of our feet to attentively, thoughtfully give like energy to all of our actions, to our life through the word of God as it's intended. Um, Father, grace abounds no matter where we are. Got to think about just Matthew 19 and how worlds were shattered and rebuilt. Um, but it was by your hands. It was by your hands. And all of it was for the purpose of drawing them into life. And so, God, wherever we are, um, we know that you're doing the same. <laughs> and it's a good thing. And so, will we even ponder the paths of our feet, especially if we're in these relational spaces or we're at these crossroads, would there be a, a level of sobriety and humility? in contemplation because the word of God is centering us and community is surrounding us. All this we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.